production. Daniel Ricciardo is one of the world's greatest athletes and Formula One drivers. With seven Grand Prix titles under his belt, he provides a masterclass in mindset and purpose, how to use it to our advantage and what it takes to achieve the impossible. Daniel's presence is irreverent and magnetic with a smile that warms your heart and laughter that punctuates our interview. This is a conversation about what it's like to have a passion with an age limit, the power of the present moment and the importance of having fun. Having fun is such a key to success and when you're having fun doing something, you're putting all your passion, all your energy behind it and therefore you're probably giving yourself the best chance of, of you know, getting a result from it. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. At the ripe old age of 31, Daniel Ricciardo displays the courage required to jump into the unknown without anyone holding his hand. This conversation is about the shared experience we call life and what we can all learn from it. Entertaining and refreshingly honest, Daniel is unlike any other athlete I have met. May his presence and endless wisdom in this conversation allow you to rediscover your dreams and truth. Daniel Ricardo, it is so great to have you here and we'll get into your huge achievement shortly, but let's start at the beginning. Tell us about what life was like growing up in Perth. Uh, <laughs> it was good. It was actually really, it was a good, uh, a good upbringing, good childhood for sure. Uh, I think, you know, like just, I'm a very, um, I guess like positive person and, you know, people always, um, I won't say always, but a lot of people recognize me for like my smile and my grin. And I think that's just a product of growing up, you know, in, I guess for me, it was Perth and having sunshine, being close to the beach, um, you know, it was always like, even after school, it's like a race to finish your homework. So you could go outside and, and play, play sports with your neighbors or, or just kind of hang out. Um, so yeah, it was just, I, I guess the, the way of life there made, it was, it was fun. It was, I certainly can't complain looking back on it. And like, what were your parents like? Did you watch much TV or was it based more around sport? Were they strict? How did they bring you up? Yeah. So they were, I mean, they were, I would say strict enough where I certainly knew where there were boundaries. Um, I couldn't have like, even up to a certain age, I couldn't really have like sleepovers at friends' houses. And so I kind of needed to, um, I don't know, I guess, earn their trust. Um, but then again, like there were rewards, you know, if I obviously did my homework or made my bed and did the dishes, then sure, I'd be able to go outside and, and play with the neighbours or, or do things. So I would say they, it was a balanced upbringing, um, certainly with some discipline, but not to a point where I was resenting my parents. <laughs> it was, it was, I think looking back, certainly a good balance. And where did the love of race car driving come from? Obviously your dad... He he's a driver. So where did that all start? Yeah, it was, I think growing up, um, you know, my dad was racing. It was, it was his passion. And I guess at that, at that age for him, it was just then a hobby. Um, 
you know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't start racing young enough to, to let's say make it a career. But once he'd built his business, um, I guess, you know, he would, uh, spend a little bit of his, of his earnings, uh, on, on the weekends and, and go racing and just have some fun. So I was growing up in mum's arms at the racetrack and I think probably just very, you know, familiar to the sound and the smell of the cars, you know, from so young, I guess that was kind of in, in my blood. Um, and then, yeah, it was kind of just like when I got old enough, I was like, all right, oh, I want to, I want to drive cars and just like, just like dad does. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was, I guess, in me from the start. And you've said that when you were young, you used to visualize yourself on the podium and I know you use visualization tools now, which is, you know, it's so funny that you visualize that. And I think you unconsciously may have manifested it. Who knows? But did you ever think that you would see yourself at 31 where you are now from when you were kind of visualizing that as a young boy? Uh, it was, you know, I certainly dreamed of it as a kid. And, but, you know, like when I was having these you know, dreams. Uh, and, and yeah, I did, I did literally pitch myself on, on the podium on an F1 podium when I was young, but it wasn't like, did I really believe at that age that that is what I was going to do and where it would take me? No, you know, I didn't, um, I don't think really many, many kids at, you know, 10, 11 know what, what they're going to do with their life. Um, but I was certainly, yeah, it was, it, I guess it was a dream. And at that, at that stage I was just racing and doing go-karts and I was having fun with it. So I, I was certainly enjoying it, but I wasn't at that point putting pressure on myself to, to let's say achieve everything that I was, you know, dreaming. Um, but yeah, the, I think visualization certainly helps and it can be a really powerful tool if, if you want it to be. Um, and it can also kind of teach you a lot uh, in, in terms of like, if you visualize, for example, before before my first ever, you know, win in Formula One, I'd visualize, you know, leading the race and then winning the race. And actually, you'd feel like your heart rate go up. And then it's like, can you control that? Can you control the nerves? And it's, yeah, you can kind of learn a lot about yourself in just through visualization, I think. I actually do a lot of visualization myself. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with it. and But I do it in the way that I want my life to, to turn out. And... So many of the things that I visualized have become true, and I, I was taught the same thing. You know, you feel you feel like you're at that place. You visualize uh, whatever you're doing, like you are there, and your mind doesn't know what's real and what's not. So you, so it, it seems like what you want, your wishes and desires, are actually coming true at that moment. How did you learn visualization and? Take us through the steps and the tools that you use when you when you do 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 it. Yeah, so I, I mean, to to be honest, I haven't got. I I guess there's kind of layers to it, and I've, I've I've kind of maybe gone a layer deep, so to speak. But I, I haven't gone full into a place where I'm like <laughs> floating above myself, so to speak. <laughs> I know I know uh, some people can describe it. Yeah, in, in obviously a pretty deep way, but um, I think it was when I was uh, when I first moved to Europe to to compete, and um, and yeah, I had some uh, I had some like uh, I guess mind coaches and a few people initially who who tried to I guess yeah help me out in terms of just I think initially it was really just to 
uh, not be overwhelmed by it all. And, you know, coming from Perth, moving to Europe, I always knew Europe was like the hub for, call it the best competition in the world for my sport. So it is kind of overwhelming and daunting. And there's nothing really that told me that I should have gone there and, and I was good enough. So some of the visualization is kind of just putting yourself in that position, I guess, um, confirming to yourself that, okay, yeah, like get that belief that you belong here, you've earned it. So like when you look around at kind of all these faces and names that maybe you've seen on TV or, or you know, looked up on the internet, it's, you know, they're, they're just normal people. And I don't know, so kind of just even visualizing your surroundings and being comfortable in that. Um, but yeah, on, on the track itself, you know, our, our sport is so, it, it's all about really like precision. Um, so every, every corner on the track, we break down to the, the moment we break, the moment we turn the car in, the moment we get back on the throttle, like, so visualizing all these kind of reference points helps kind of put, put the perfect lap together, so to speak. Do you do that now before every race? I do it. Yeah. I, I would go, so I don't do it actually. I, I wouldn't say I do it like religiously yeah. an hour before every race, but um, more so probably in the week of the race. Um, so I'll kind of do my study um, before I even get to the destination and, and kind of rock up a little more prepared, I feel. And then uh, maybe before qualifying, qualifying is like really important for us and it's kind of like one lap yes. to kind of show everything you got. And I feel that's where, um, yeah, the visualization is, is quite good for me. And you left home, obviously, to go and, and become this amazing uh, Formula One driver at a really young age. You're really close to your family, I know that. How did you manage that? Was that daunting for you leaving when you were so young? Yeah, it was, absolutely, because I, still at that age, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and, you know, as far as with my career and also just with life and, and looking after myself, um, you know, mum was good. You know, she would always put food on the table and, yeah, I would wash a few dishes and make my bed, but that was about as far as it went, you know, so I didn't, I didn't really know how to cook. She's a good Italian um, mum. She was a very good Italian <laughs> mum, yeah, or she is, yeah. yeah. And, um, and like even so when I moved away, there was certainly elements of like just missing home and missing friends and family, but then it was also, okay, I've got to, you know, uh, survive and, <laughs> and, and actually learn, learn a few things. And there was one example where it, um, it was, there was a bad thunderstorm one night and I, I wasn't sure what to do. So, um, cause I needed to put some washing on and I was like, am I going to get electrocuted if I turn the washing machine on while there's a storm? So I called my mum and she just started laughing. So yeah, Les. I didn't know much. <laughs> I totally get it. I come from a beautiful Jewish family where yeah. my mum would still do everything for me if I, if I lived at home. It's that really, they just... They are yeah. the most beautiful they humans. They cannot help it. So uh, I yeah. understand. <laughs> Daniel, you say that you're a big believer in treating people the way that you want to be treated. Where did that belief come from? Uh, I think it was probably just, I mean, something that for sure I was, um, you know, told and, and I guess taught, you know, from, from parents and I guess, 
um, I guess teachers as well at school. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of felt like as well, a lot of my, a lot of my friends were, you know, they were like really close and good people, you know, and, and I feel like we, we had a lot of trust, I guess, as friends from, from such a young age. And I think it was the way that we treated each other. Um, I think as well, you know, like when you're young at school, for sure, we look back on things and we're like, oh, you know, I was, I was a bit of an idiot then. And it's just obviously being young, but you know, like whether you got teased or whether you bullied someone, um, you know, at some point, if you, if you dish it out, you then get it back in return. So I guess like teasing someone at school is, is all fun and games. But then when someone teases you back, you realize, okay, yeah, that, that kind of hurts. So yeah, I think just trying to, trying to then understand that, um, and knowing that if you're okay, if you smile at someone or if you're polite, then you'll probably get that back. So it's a much easier and nicer way to, to go about your day. How do you feel like you've been treated on your journey and especially before you came into fame and being quite young when you started off and, and, and then being on your own? Do you feel like the people around you treated you with respect and how do you feel now being well-known? Can you tell when someone is being fake or when they're being sincere? I mean, that must be hard. Yeah, I think it's it's over. It's probably, um, it kind of correlates with just getting older and kind of more, more wise, um, more wise with years, you know? So even if I was, let's say, super famous at 17 years old, I probably wouldn't have been able to, let's say, differentiate, yeah. you know, the, the real from the fake. Um, but so I think it just comes with time and with age as well. But um, yeah, like I think being, you know, everyone's always for sure been nice to me and, and I've, I've certainly made some, some really good friends along the way and, and built some strong relationships. Um, but it's, uh, I think the, on the racetrack, it was probably before, like I, I noticed the potential like detriment of that on the racetrack before I noticed it maybe in, in life or business. So like on track, I think I, I felt like, cause I was like the nice guy off the track, people expected that on track. So, you know, like I would get bullied on the racetrack um, mm. in, in the first, you know, in the first, uh, you know, there was some early years in Formula One, I remember. Um, I'm going to say bullied, like that's all on me. It's just like me not being hard enough. And I could tell like some drivers would, um, I guess, yeah, kind of race me harder knowing that I wouldn't probably um, stick my elbows out. Um, but then, uh, so that obviously then I, I was able to change that for, for the better. Um, and then I think in probably just one of those things, like if you, it's kind of like, yeah, you give someone an inch and they take a mile. Yes. And I feel that, that you are a bit more vulnerable to that if you are a nice person. Um, because it's easy to kind of for people to feel like they've been let in mm. and then it's like, oh, I'm in now. Okay, what else What else is there to explore? <laughs> um, so now I've certainly like over the years, you know, you just learn to read people a bit better and I think understanding and knowing that it's okay to say no or to push back on things because, um, yeah, it's uh, at the end of the day, like, yes, I'm uh, – I, I I don't like using I'm, I don't use the word famous, but let's say I'm recognised mm. in you know a few parts of the world now, and 
like that's cool. But at the end of the day, like I'm still currently a Formula One driver and my job is still currently to race cars and to do that the best I can. So that has to be my focus and priority more than anything. How has it been being a recognized face? How do you find that? Uh, It's like, would I, (laughs) do I, I I certainly don't do it for that. (laughs) I I don't think think uh, many many would say that, (laughs) but um, like for sure it has its perks and it's, you know, like, especially if you're in like a foreign country and someone literally runs up to you on the street and is like, oh my gosh, like I'm such a fan and you know, you're the reason I I watch F1 or you're the reason why I I do this or like, so that's obviously really nice. Um, But uh, I think now like it's the, my biggest thing is at times when you want your own space Mm. and when you kind of expect to get it, maybe that's not always the case. Um, So in terms of, yeah, if you're just uh, even out with, you know, like so if if I um catch up with my family, which is, you know, maybe twice a year, um, you know, if we're having a nice dinner or something and it's literally been maybe six months since we saw each other, you kind of just want that that kind of moment to yourselves. Mm. And if it does get interrupted, then it's like, ah, oh, like that's kind of a, a bummer. But I, I certainly understand that that comes with it. And it's a small thing, but I think yes. over time they kind of add up and nibble at you a, a little bit. So... Yeah, I think as long as people are like respectful with space, then that's that's really all I think we we can ask for. I've from what I've seen, you've always been really courteous to your fans, especially so many young ones that adore you and come to watch all the races. I mean, how important is it to you to always be smiling and to give those people time? Yeah, I I understand it because you know, that, that was me. Uh, and it doesn't feel like that long ago, that that was me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, I was a fan. I am a fan. Um, even now of other sports, you know, I'll go, go to other events as a fan. So, you know, may, maybe I don't, I'm not necessarily chasing someone's autograph these days, but um, yeah, you just, you want to have obviously a, an awesome experience and, and leave, leave a good impression on, on people. So um, it's one of those ones though, as well, that, unfortunately, like someone's always going to miss out. Like you'll never be able to sign yes. every autograph, have every photo. So it's like, you know, if, if one driver does five minutes of signing, then sure, I'll try and do 10 minutes and, and let's say try and give a little bit extra if I can. But um, it, is, it is hard to please everyone for sure. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I certainly try and do what I can um, to give them, let's say, that experience and, even though for me, I think it's important that, yeah, I'm racing 20-something times a year, so an F1 event for me feels normal. Yeah. But this might be someone's first ever event, and, you know, it might be their one and only time to ever come to an event. So, yeah, like just having that awareness that this is really special to someone, I think that helps kind of, you know, uh, make that moment a little bit, uh, uh, yeah, what do I say? Just a, a little bit kind of easier and, and, and it helps, I guess, give you, let, um, allow yourself to give them time, yes. putting yourself in, I guess, their shoes and their position. I've seen footage of your mum before the races. She gets super nervous, which is understandable because she is your mother. And I think as a mother, that always 
will happen. You are her baby, doesn't matter how old you are. Has there ever been a point in a race where you have been worried for your life or like been really concerned that, geez, I'm, I'm driving a car at potentially 300 kilometres an hour, I could die here? Uh, I, I want to say, I mean, not, not to, I, I think no, like no, no is kind of the short answer, but, you know, like since I was young, you know, I, I've been aware of the risks with the sport, you know, some, uh, I was what, four, I think four years old when Ayrton Senna passed away, mm-hmm. who was a, a hero for so many of us. So I was, I was aware of all of that from a young age, but I think once you, once you get into it and kind of you're so focused and I think just driven that, you know, there's like an element of risk and, and maybe an element of fear, but it's, it's to the back. It's, it's very far down the back of, of your mind. And yeah, you kind of, you also can't allow it to creep in because I think that's when you start to call it, make mistakes or overthink things and, and, and driving needs to be very, instinctive and and reactive and decisive and it's like you can't really let you can't cloud whatever's going on upstairs but um yeah i'm I'm aware that it it certainly uh puts mum and and i'm sure dad through through their nerves and yeah i just uh hopefully i can win as much as i can and repay them with success and happiness and joy (laughs) oh i'm sure they are so proud how do you mentally prepare for a race you talked about nerves briefly then. How do you not go into that? I know you've done it for a while, but that sense of fight or flight. I mean, you know, I get nervous sometimes. I've done a zillion interviews and occasionally I'll get a couple of nerves. How, yeah, how do you mentally prepare? So it's it's all about, and this is, you know, I've, I'd learned it over, over time um, and, and with people uh, around me who, who are helping me, um, let's say get to this point, it's, it's kind of the biggest thing I, I find is like find, find ways to like enjoy the uncomfortable. So like mm-hmm. find comfort in the uncomfort <laughs> or the discomfort. So like, for example, on the grid, like for us, like before the race, it, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, before the storm, you know, the grid is, is chaotic. There's, the grandstands are there and there's the anthem and then there's media and they're trying to get like last minute interviews before we jump in the car for battle. And that's like a really intense time. And actually once we get in the car and start the race, then everything kind of cools down. And that's like when we're more calm, I guess. But, you know, so like, let's say the grid is the most nerve wracking time, but, it's also like such an experience that it would be a shame to like wish it away. Yes. So it's like I've learned to really love that moment and to, you know, like it, it, it might sound uh, a bit, uh, I don't know, heroic or whatever, but it, like, it makes you feel alive. Like mm. it is such a, a, like a powerful feeling. And, and I think that's what like nerves are. Like it creates, you know, as we say, like those butterflies yeah. and that's, that's excitement. And it's, uh, I don't know, I think like not having that feeling would be really quite, quite a shame. So yes. it's kind of about like accepting it and then enjoying it mm-hmm. and being, I think, quite grateful to actually have that and be 
like care about something so much that it does that to your body. That's so true. I've heard some people talk about anxiety like that. A lot of rock stars, they say, you know, what some people would call anxiety, they walk on stage and they use that to power them to do an amazing, amazing show. Yet some other people would not be able to walk on stage with that feeling. So it's so interesting to know that you embrace that as well. How important is it, and especially in your sport, being completely present? It's everything because, yeah, the margin for error is, yeah, uh, it's so, so small. So, you know, and, and I think it's also, you know, so the, let's say from a driving point of view, it's everything because we need to be like, we need to have, let's say, pinpoint accuracy if we're thinking about something else coming into a corner and we break five meters later, you know, we're probably off the track or, or in the wall or something. So like that alone is, is so important that we need to be present. We, we can't afford not to. Um, but also like you, you know, a race is 70 laps, call it. If you're at lap one thinking, okay, I, I'm going to be, or I need to be, you know, on, in third place after this race, or like I need to get a podium, then what's happening in those 70 laps? Like, I think you need to be present to actually execute the best result possible. You know, you need to take in a way like one lap at a time to then perfect every moment in the race to give you the best chance of, you know, being on the podium. So it's like, I think it's just with everything. Like you can't, a lot of people want like quick success and they think like, always big picture and yeah in in a year I'm going to make this amount of money but it's like okay what are you going to do to get to that point and to be able to do that you need to be present I guess in every moment and in every decision you make. Like you said precision and being in the moment is such a big thing especially for Formula One racing it can be you've got your life in your hands as well. What happens and when you know you may have had the worst day and some real personal issues come into come into play how do you focus and get those things out of your mind to then sit in a car and be able to do what you do at such a high level it can be a few things like sometimes it'll be as simple as I just put my headphones on and play you know some of my favorite songs at that moment and it's like it's kind of like a switch for me um so I think I'm quite lucky where music has always been such like a powerful tool for me and such a trigger. And so that, that can be like a very easy, effective way. Um, I think if I've got the luxury of time, you know, so say if I had a bad race on Sunday and I had a week till the next race, then, you know, probably on Monday I would, I I, I take a journal around with me. So I'll just probably like vent and write, you know, in my journal to like offload maybe the things that are bothering me. And then that's normally a really good way to, let's say, clear clear the plate and, uh, and reset. Do you have a morning routine? Like, do you do meditation? You obviously said you do journaling. Do you do, like, gratitude and stuff? So I do the last, I'll say the last three years, I've, um, I do, like, so before kind of breakfast or anything, I'll do... It's well, I call it dynamic stretching. So it's kind of like, I guess, yeah, it's the stretching to start my day. Um, and so I guess it's it's a form of meditation. 
so to speak. But it's, uh, yeah, basically I'll go through like a routine of, of stretches for probably 20, 30 minutes. Um, and then uh, it's kind of just like, yeah, it's a good way for me to start my day. And I think through that, I'll probably like go through things in my head and yeah, figure out what's on my mind. But um, that's more kind of internal. Um, and then my journal is more, it's kind of a bit more spontaneous. Like I'll pick it up when I've got a sword or if, if I want to, you know, offload some things, but that could be once a week. It could be once a month. It, it kind of varies. Yeah. Do you ever go back and read what you've written a year later or anything like that? Yeah, I do. I do. And that's, um, it's actually really good. Like, cause you, it's really cool to see, also how far you've come, you know, yes. from like some things that were bothering you maybe a year ago, I'll look back at it now and be like, oh, wow, like that's that's funny. Like I wouldn't care about that today. Um, so yeah, I, I do look back on it a bit. And physically, how do you prepare before a race? Physically, it's, so this is one thing where it's so hard to um, probably to get others to appreciate our sport from a physical standpoint. It's It's, simply because no one else can do it in in terms of no one can, hey, I want to drive an F1 car this weekend. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a, so, so few people in yes. the world have experienced it and, and can experience it. So yeah, I've kind of said like everyone can relate to other sports, you know, particularly ball sports. You know, we know that, yeah, playing whatever 80 minutes of AFL would be very, very exhausting, you know, um, you know, we can comprehend that, but racing is different. So I would say if I've got like seven days of, of no commitments, I would be five and a half days training. Um, so it's kind of like two sessions a day and then maybe a, a day and a half rest. And it's mainly like we need cardio, like we need endurance because the races are kind of 90 minutes, two hours yeah. long. So we need like a really good base endurance. So whether it's we'll do like running, cycling um, to build that. And then our biggest muscles we need is like our neck because that takes most of the G-forces. So we have like these neck harnesses and all these, uh, let's say, bits of equipment, which we do for that. And then a lot of our core as well. Um, Because even though we're like really locked into the car, like strapped in, still the force like twists our body. And so like after a race, my sorest kind of muscles would be like my neck and my lower back. So can we go yep. back to the neck? Because I find that really interesting. Yeah. And I've, I, I, I did know that before I interviewed you. How do you strengthen your neck? So it's basically, I mean, I do it with bands as well. So like just your kind of elastic elastic bands, like your resistance bands. And so that will be, so I'll just like tie it to the door and just wrap it around my head. And I'll either just like do holds um, or you can do kind of like nods Um so that's kind of my more endurance neck training. So yeah. I'll do that for an hour, I guess. Um, it's kind of boring, but yeah, if you sit there and you can, I don't know, watch watch TV or something. Um, and then we have an actual harness with like kind of a pulley on the end of it. Yeah. So like my trainer will basically pull a force and I'll have to hold like, yeah, hold against the resistance. So we'll do like maybe 30 reps of that to each side, like front, back, left and right. And we'll do maybe five sets. And I'll do those pretty much every second day of the week. I'll, I'll do neck training. Um, in saying that, 
it's still not the same thing. So once we get in the car, like inevitably after an off season, we could train our neck every day. But when we drive the F1 car for the first time after like three months, our neck's sore. Like really? it's the best training is the driving. Yeah. And we just, we can't get enough of it. <laughs> and nutrition, how do you fuel your body? So with F1, it's very light, uh, lightweight. Like yeah. our sport is a lightweight sport. Um, the cars, everything is all about keeping it as light as possible because that, that is performance and speed. So I can basically for me, I can be around 70 kilos. Uh, if I start getting above 70, then it starts to, let's say, penalize me um, and, and my performance. So it's all about kind of like lean, lean muscle. Um, so with, with food, it's not too bad. I think I've got a really fast metabolism, so I can still get away with like some cheat days, but on a race weekend, I'll keep it pretty simple. And like, I think just try and have a balanced diet. Um, certainly have, you know, the last few years I've got more into like having more fats. Um, and that's been really good. So like, you know, even cooking with a lot more like coconut oils, things like this. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, fortunately, I love I love vegetables as well. So, I would say I eat pretty healthy. I mean, I have a sweet tooth, but normally I'm eating pretty healthy. And it it could it's really anything. I, I wouldn't say I follow something yes. like crazy crazy strict. Do you believe there is a natural ability or talent to racing or do you think that it's all practice uh definitely a natural ability i think and and i i do believe like the greats are born with that Mm. um but that's not all in terms of like they they have to certainly practice to let's say use that ability um but yeah like if if you if you add that Sorry, if you add practice to that, let's say natural born talent, then uh, then yeah, I think that will separate you from even the real the real hard workers. Um, I, I would say, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's I say that, but then like for me, I wasn't you know when I was still living in Australia, racing you know go karts and and let's say like the local competition. I wasn't like winning every race. Like I wasn't this golden child that was always going to make it. So yeah, I don't know. I, I do. I mean, when I moved to Europe, actually, there was, I remember some kids from other parts of the world who'd also moved to Europe. So we were in like a similar position and they would, I felt already like abuse the privilege of living away from home and, you know, already think they'd made it and party and, and all this where, I very I stayed true to the course from the start and maybe that's that maybe that made the difference. So yeah, yeah I don't know, actually, now that I think about it. I don't know. I, I certainly worked hard, so maybe that got me further than I yeah. thought. I made like a point, especially when I left home, that you know, because I, I was a homebody, like I loved home and missing like my friends' eighteenth birthdays, you know, that first and second year that I was away. Like that was a big deal for Mm. me. And so that was like my drive as well to be like, okay, if I've made, you know, this move, then I'm not going home, you know, with nothing to show for it. So I was like, all right, I've I've made the commitment now. I'm going to do everything I can to 
make it a worthwhile commitment. <laughs> Amazing. And look at what you've done. In 2018, you announced you were leaving Red Bull to sign with Renault and you took, when you were at Red Bull, you took seven Grand Prix wins whilst you were there, 30 podium finishes and three pole positions. Why did you decide to leave? It was, I think, probably like, uh, I don't know, I guess time for a lot of things like runs its course and I'd I'd been part of the, the Red Bull family, I think, for 10 years at that point. And I kind of felt like it had got to a little bit of a, kind of it had plateaued a little and, and kind of stalemate. And even for me personally, I felt like I was probably only going to learn so much or, or achieve so much uh, at that point with, with the team. And I was also worried about like myself getting a bit complacent, like seeing the same faces every day, the same environment. I was just like, it was at times it was a little bit easy to walk into work if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I felt like it was time to challenge myself and also, yeah, I think there was definitely some things that year, especially 2018 that didn't, didn't go well. And it just felt like, yeah, a lot was starting to like, and not like not to go down the woe is me route, but a lot was kind of going against me. And I was just like, all right. And I was getting frustrated. And for the first time I was kind of angry at the sport and I was like, all right, I need, I need to kind of change this. Otherwise uh, I I couldn't see it getting better with with the environment I was in. And then you obviously moved to Renault and, and that didn't go as as glowingly as you would have hoped, but you spent two years there and then obviously now you're at McLaren. How has that journey been and how do you go from going from one to the other to the other? I know there's so much talk and so much is written about you. Like, how do you feel about all that? It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's okay. Like it's, it's part of it. And when, when I, um, when I left Red Bull to go to Renault, that created like so much noise and yes. attention, like more than I thought. So yeah, that that was um, that was certainly like a bit to deal with, but um, but in saying that, it's like it's one of those ones like you try to turn maybe a negative into a positive. And it's like okay, if it's a big deal, then yeah, people people care. So that's that's kind of nice that I've made you know this much noise, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's like. It's it's certainly more challenging, you know. It's it's like changing job, you know, going into a new workplace mm. or, or changing school. You know, it, it's daunting, but I think it does force you to to grow um, and kind of like discover a little bit more about yourself and and also learn from other people. You know, be a sponge. And I think that's something I'm always trying to do. Is I, I love you know hanging out, especially when I when I moved to Europe. I loved hanging out with older people just because they'd had more life experience than me. So I, I felt I could learn more from, from them. And uh, it's a bit like that with a new team. So for sure, you want to like, you want to build something and stay put. And, you know, I think ultimately at Renault the first year, things weren't progressing at a rate, which I felt, you know, was, was kind of expected. And I always kind of had one eye looking at McLaren and they were, you know, kind of doing what, um, I think was expected of them. And it, it, it just looked like that was kind of the, and it's not like I made the wrong move at the time, but I was like, okay, I've got a chance again to, let's say, make another decision. 
uh, I just have more conviction right now that this is this is the one. So yeah, um, yeah, I think it. it you've just got to. I don't know. I think people talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, I'm going to, no, I won't go down a rabbit hole, but people talk about loyalty yes. and it's like at the end of the day, and I'm not saying they, they, they talk about loyalty with me, but just in general, but I think there's like my career in this sport, it's nothing's ever guaranteed and mm-hmm. it might be another three years. It might be six years, but it's not like this, this sport has me for the next 30 years. So I need to be in a way selfish. I need to make big decisions and I need to do what's going to give me the best chance. Um, because whilst I still believe I can win, that's, that's what I want to do. So, you know, like uh, I think a loyalty, loyalty works when things are going well, yes, Absolutely. <laughs> but it's like, would you rather be loyal and, and be, you know, not be successful your whole life, but Hey, Oh, at least I was loyal. Or would you rather the opposite? And and I I personally would rather the opposite. So that I get it. That's how it is. And what about now, Daniel? Do you have your eye on someone else? What about Red Bull again? No, I I don't. Like I I really really feel like my introduction into McLaren the last few months since since I joined has been, um, I don't know, nothing short of wonderful and awesome. <laughs> And, you know, that's not, that's not, the, I'm not kind of just carrying the the stage line or whatever, but it really has been. And it's been, you know, such a, I think a positive environment to be around so far. And, and I don't know, it's, it's like, I don't feel it's also a honeymoon period thing. Like it, it seems like this is legit and this is genuine and this is why the team has, has made such rapid progress in the last two years. So um, it feels, it feels really right. And, you know, I've committed to the team for three years. So I certainly want, uh, I want this one to work and, and want to grow and help them get, uh, get back to the front. And it, it's such a team with like such a strong history and they've yes. got such a following that there's a lot of energy behind the team itself. So yeah, I think with, with a little bit of, of me there as well, hopefully it does what it has to do. You carry a lot of good energy with you. You've had an interesting relationship with the media over the years. You've said that it's 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 difficult to enjoy racing in Melbourne and having your freedom in your hometown of Perth. Can you explain your relationship with the media? Yeah, so I think with the Melbourne race, it's um I guess it's one that obviously I want it to be my favorite one. You know, it's it's where I've got you know, the most fans, it's where I've got the most family coming to see me. Like it's, and Melbourne, since I was young, like I love Melbourne as a city. Um, I remember when I was young, I was like, yeah, one day I'm going to live in Melbourne. I'll tell my parents because I've always just loved, you know, it's like, there's, there's a lot going on. It's a cool city. I get um, it. It's my hometown. <laughs> yeah, I've I've certainly always enjoyed it. So I think it, it certainly changed, you know, when when I started racing and competing there and I realized that, you know, I might've had 20 friends and family that would come to the race and I literally wouldn't see them the whole weekend mm. because I was basically just inundated with, with requests. And I guess everyone always felt like they were more important than the other person and, you know, try to take, I guess, take my time. And I think ultimately as well, it was, you know, it can be frustrating because I'm there again, even with, I'm there not to see family or friends. I'm there to compete at the end of the day. And 
I just felt like a lot of these, um, a lot of kind of the requests would take me away from my job. And, you know, so Melbourne actually has, I've had some decent races there, but as a whole, it hasn't been like a crazy successful place for me as far as results. And um, I feel like I've always left there quite frustrated because I, I look back on the week and I'm like, well, that's why. And this mm. is that. And it's like, you know, I'm jumping in the car already exhausted on Sunday yeah. and, you know, my mind's like all over the place. So I think it's, and the media was always good. Like, it's not like the media would say bad things, but it was just trying to get them to understand that I appreciate they want me to have a good result, but they're not always helping because it's taking me away from my job. So I'm like, just give me a bit more of my own time. Yeah. That way I can execute a good result. And then Sunday night, Monday, you can write as much as you want about me in, in positive light. <laughs> well, knowing that now and the, what you've just said, how do you think when you come here, fingers crossed, everything going clear, at the end of the year, how will you, how will you come to Melbourne to be able to achieve what you want to achieve? Yeah, it's all about, so I think like even just simple things like time management. So, you know, where we would used to, you know, do like, call it a whole day of one-on-one interviews. Yeah, It's like, okay, let's, let's still give everyone their time, but let's have, you know, three in one block or five people in one block yes. as opposed to, so, you know, let's compress this as opposed to it being a 12-hour day. Let's bring it down to a six-hour day. Um so it's kind of just little things like time management. And I think everyone will still get what they want, but it's just giving me more time to, again, focus on what I'm really there for. Um, and uh, I think as well, like Melbourne being the opening race of the year, kind of inevitably is the most chaotic because nothing's happened for so long. So there is always going to be more attention and more questions. So maybe it happening in, in, in November, kind of towards the end of the season mm. that there's already like a story written. I think it will probably naturally just be a little bit easier. Yes. So yeah, maybe, maybe November will be a good thing. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. But I certainly want to get back. Like I don't, in saying all these things, like I don't resent the race at all. Like I do love going to Melbourne. It's normally just when I leave Melbourne, I'm like, ah, oh, a bit bummed out. Yes. So I don't really even realize it during the moment, but, but yeah, I do look forward to going back. And all the Aussies love you here. So I think it's such an, it's, it's so important that you feel so at home in your, in your own country. Daniel, there's never obviously a dull moment in your life. You have a new wine venture with St. Hugo. Can you tell us a bit about that and how you got involved? Well, <laughs> grape juice, good old grape juice. So, <laughs> uh, again, actually, it's one, it's one really from, that I got from, from family and from my dad. Um, so my dad was born in, in Sicily. And so he's got, you know, strong, let's say Mediterranean blood. And, you know, I, I associate, you know, a, a lot of dinners and stuff with, with red wine. And I think he's, um, he's, you know, done, he's, uh, he's made his own wine, you know, with, with his dad and his family and, kind of just like a bit of Italian probably tradition as well, like making your own wine. And I appreciate it's not just an Italian thing, but um, but growing up, I guess that was kind of everyone would squash grapes, uh, whatever, once a year and, and do it. So 
I guess I got, you know, some of that interest from him as well. And then when, uh, when we got the, or got in contact with, with St. Hugo and, and discussed potentially what we could do, I was so excited. Um, because I felt like I'd already, I mean, I'd already just through those years, I'd, I'd understood or started mm. to appreciate at least wine. And, um, yeah. And I think with, you know, I, I talked so much about like F1 being the priority and it is very much so. Um, but I also, I love having other interests. Like I love being able to switch off from F1 as well. So it's the priority, I guess, when it needs to be. But on my off weeks or off days, I think if I'm just thinking about F1 and, and race cars in my head, then I'm, I'm just going to be exhausted. So I, I kind of make a point to certainly have other interests and other things that keep me kind of driven and occupied away from the track. And uh, yeah, this, this one was great. And everyone at St. Hugo was so excited about it as well. So I think when like a relationship like that is, is genuine and both parties are excited and willing to kind of do everything they can to make it, I guess, work and make it awesome, then it's cool. And uh, it's, it's like even now, like talking to dad, I can, I can explain to him, oh, do you know, do you know kind of what, yes. you know, a Shiraz is and, and a Cab Sav and, and the notes and yes. the smell. And, you know, it's, I, I feel a little bit proud to like describe some things to him, which maybe he doesn't, he doesn't quite know. <laughs> That's so great. Daniel, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? And that this sounds so basic, but sometimes it's the basics which we forget. It's like have fun. Yeah. Like because having fun is I I feel such a key to success. And when you're having fun doing something, you're putting all your passion, all your energy behind it. And therefore, I, you're probably giving yourself the best chance of, of, you know, getting a result from it. So, you know, and like, I think back, like some of my most successful races, it's, it's been when I'm relaxed and I'm having fun. You know, if I've got friends there and it's like just really enjoying that moment and kind of being in the zone and just loving it. And I think as a kid, like I raced because I, you know, I was having more fun racing than anything else. And um, I think it was important to keep that even when it started getting serious, even when it started becoming professional, you know, it's like hold that element and don't overcomplicate the rest. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? <laughs> Probably to say no. <laughs> um, I think patience as well. Mm. And, you know, patience is such a big one where, you know, I've been guilty of it. You know, I'll, I've been quoted a few times like, oh, you know, my age, because I know there's a time on the sport, yeah. you know, I'm not going to do this sport till I'm 50. And so I'm kind of always like talking about my age and like, you know, I've, I've got to kind of work because time's working against me. And um, again, it's easy to be like, you know, I've got to be world champion this year or, but it's like, have patience in the process and yeah, don't, don't think too far ahead. How do you deal with the age thing? Because you have brought it up a couple of times and I know it would be so hard to have that age limit to an extent. I mean, you're only 31. I mean, what is the limit? I don't even know what it means. And I think, you know, the truth is if I look after myself 
and you know keep training hard and and keeping healthy then i mean i can do this for really as as long as i wish so it's it's i would say more on me than than anyone else and i think that's what i've come to realize as well um but i mean typically like late 30s is is kind of where you would start to probably get you know get close to drawing the line but i think ultimately it's as long as i'm still motivated passionate and still fearless enough to you know to push the car to the limits then i guess i'll keep keep doing it till uh, till i become a full-time wine connoisseur <laughs> i was gonna ask what would you do do you have any ideas what you do after you retire i i don't have an answer today um i think I, I do have an idea in terms of, I, I really feel if I pour everything into this, like Formula One is exhausting mentally, physically, just the, our travel schedule mm-hmm. is insane. We we do close to a hundred flights a year, most of them international. So, you know, I think after Formula One, I think I'll be probably exhausted from it and want to do something completely different. And so I think like my real goal is to, find something other than F1 yeah. post, post-career that, that gives me the same drive and, you know, something that I have high ambitions for. So, yeah, um, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I mean, I'm passionate about a lot of things. Like, I love music. I don't play instruments, but I just know that I love being around music. So, there could be something, you know, being involved somehow through something like that. But, yeah, I don't, don't really know. What's your greatest hope for society today? Uh, I think I think it starts with kids. Like I feel that, you know, every kid should have a chance to become something. Um, that's, I guess that, that would be it. You know, um, I think being told no from such a young age just shouldn't, I, I, I like that shouldn't exist, you know, like, mm. um, I think every kid should have a chance to make their dream come true. And yeah, I, um, what probably my favorite show actually on, on Netflix is last chance you, um, it's about, uh, the first few seasons are about like college football and then the last one's about college basketball, but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of just about like, I guess kids that you can see have had, I would say probably just, simply like less fortunate upbringings or many more trials and tribulations to, to deal with at such a young age. And like they, they persist and they push through it, but it's, it would be so easy for them to just, I don't know, just kind of believe that they can't do it or turn their back on it. And I don't know. Um, and these are teenagers, but yeah, I feel like a, kids from a young age just should have every chance possible to, to do what they want and to to play a sport or, or to, to chase something that they're after. What is a life of greatness to you? I think waking up every morning and being excited about what you do. Um, so, you know, I think it's, you know, like life is, it certainly is short. <laughs> uh, and it's like, I feel like, there's no, what's the point of wasting days, you know, doing something that you're not passionate about or that doesn't motivate you. So I think a life of greatness is really following something that gives you drive 
every day. And as soon as that fades, then try to pick up something and, and just be, I think be like a, yeah, someone who's a go-getter or someone who's a dream chaser. Um, that's like a life of greatness. You know, someone that is living with fulfillment, I think every day and doing what they can to f- at least find that fulfillment. Even even if you don't find it every day, at least try and pursue it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably my, my understanding of it. Daniel Ricardo, thank you for being such a good person and such a such a fabulous role model for Formula One and for sport in general. We are so very grateful for you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Sarah. It was good to chat. For more inspiration and wisdom, I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a Life of Greatness podcast. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, and watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.